0: You're listening to The Good GP, the podcast for busy GPs.
1: Hello and welcome to The Good GP. My name's Sean Stevens, and before we start the podcast, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands upon which this podcast is recorded. This episode is brought to you from the lands of the Wajuk and Kubikubi people. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Now, leaping straight into it, my guest today is Dr Robin Park, GP pain specialist, and all-around great guy. Robin has the very unusual perspective of having seen things from a GP and sub-specialist perspective,
0: and is keen to give us his insights. Welcome, Rob. Thanks very much, Sean. Thanks very much for having me. Um, pain management something we obviously deal with in Australian general practice all the time, and uh, I, I thought I wanted to go and get a few more skills in it and have it as my special interest area, so that's why I sort of added the second fellowship on top, uh, as well as seeing my normal GP patients.
1: That's right, as well as being involved in exams, having a couple of kids, being married. Life, right? (laughs) Yeah, life. life. Exactly, exactly. Um, So, Robin, today we're talking about procedures in pain management. Can you please talk us through what are some of the common procedures you would do for pain management and how can we as GPs work out who is likely to benefit from them?
0: Yeah, fantastic. Um, I'll be really honest straight off the bat. As a GP, I, I didn't. I kept getting all these uh, sort of radiology reports for requesting different procedures and this, that, and the other thing. And I, I think I went through medical school at the time where it was in the Australian newspaper for medical students not knowing their anatomy. Uh, so I, I think I struggled a bit with some of these things. So it's been quite eye-opening for me. I, I guess the important thing to start off with is any discussion today sort of on procedural uh, interventions and what you can do for, for pain, uh, requires a, a real quick proviso, which is basically we need to keep in mind that procedural management needs to occur in the setting of lots of other things. So the management of a person who's experiencing pain, obviously that, that pain is affecting their life. It's affecting their ability to go to work or look after their kids or, or do some of the things that they enjoy. So, so we need to essentially think, okay, procedures is just one step in the multitude of steps we're going to do to try and help someone through so essentially when i'm thinking about someone who comes in with pain i, I tend to think about it under five headings education and teaching them about pain and what the procedure might be is always number one and that's where our good communication skills as a gp actually are really really helpful to get them on board to understand what's going on second one is then allied health input we really need uh, you know our physios on board our psychologists on board our ot's on board to try and help us. It's like uh, if you want to get fit, you, you can't watch a video of someone else getting fit, you need to actually use your legs and, and walk yourself. So it's important to keep these things in mind. Then of course there's pharmacological management and medications, which we're not gonna have time, we won't discuss today so much. But then we talk about procedures and and infusions. And I, I think it's important that we we keep all these things in mind because if someone comes in, say with a painful hip and and you know, you send them off for uh, an intra-articular or into the joint steroid and local anesthetic injection. If that person then goes home and sits on the couch for the next you know, bunch of weeks, what will happen is that procedure will wear off and the person will be back to square one. They're not going to be any better. You haven't really helped them. You've probably got them out of your room once, uh, but they will come back. <laughs> so um, so it's, it's not going to solve your problems or theirs. Um, so I think you need to keep in mind that interventions – the way we think about them and certainly the way I think about them now is they're a window of opportunity for rehab. So that for the person that, you know, is, is trying to say they've had a shoulder injury and they're trying to get back into doing exercises with their shoulder, they go and see their physio, but they try and do some basic exercise and it's so painful that they wipe themselves out for four or five days. They can't do the home exercise program and they can't get better. And then they try again and they just, they can't do it enough. It becomes a limiting factor. So I think we need to keep that in mind. I think that's really important. Patients, as as you'd know, Sean. I mean, and human beings, we we want a needle. We want the quick fix. We want the magic tablet that takes things away. But unfortunately, it doesn't always happen. Um, I mean, you've probably seen that yourself. You know, people come in. You know, do you do you come across a few people who are like, oh yeah, doc, surely there's an injection. This will take it away. I mean, is yeah, that absolutely, you've
1: seen? yeah. Um, And I think it is very, very important to manage those expectations. You know, there's there's usually the period of rest straight after the injection, but then, like you say, that's so you can then get to the physio or the exercise physiologist and and start to really get stuck into the rehab and build the supporting soft tissue up. I couldn't agree more. But it is the expectations. Patients want something, you know, an injection or a tablet that that fixes it for them without the hard work
0: and increasingly there's advertisers for these sort of things. And there is, you know, come and get this procedure and this will fix everything. And we just need to keep that in mind as GPs. Same with everything. There's, there's always the snake oil treatment that will fix the world. But, I mean, always part of our job is to manage that expectation go, look, it's going to cost you a fortune. You're going to fly to South America and it's probably not going to work. work, which was literally my exam case in my RSCGP exam with the patient who was John Murtagh, who, uh, who I had to convince not to go to South America for a treatment. But anyway, that's uh, a by the by. Yeah, so, so whenever you're doing a procedure, you've got to think, okay, who are we pulling in? So if we're going to do a procedure, we're going to do the procedure, but then we're going to have a plan. After that procedure, we need to have the physio on board. Do we need a psychologist to work on their mentor? Is their motivation so low and they're so depressed about their pain and they're not going to do anything anyway? Well, you probably need the psychologist on board nice and early to help them with that. Uh, are they going to try and get back to work? You might need an occupational therapist to help them to get back into a workplace if it's a work cover injury or something like that and you want to get them back into work. Just doing a procedure and then, you know, say they've got a sore leg and then you do an intervention around the leg, but they work as a concreter, you know, they're going to struggle to go back into that workplace, even if the procedure is going to work straight away, because they've probably been sitting on their bum for, you know, six to eight weeks with this injury. So you need to pull in your, it helps in a big way. Getting to the nuts and bolts of the procedures for us. So we're going to start with the simple stuff. Nearly all procedures, if you can, and we'll start with some form of diagnostic block. So what that means is if you've got a condition like occipital neuralgia pain up and over the top of the head, you think it's that, you don't know it's that. Um, there's no scan that you can do to see with that occipital is traps. The way to work that out is under an ultrasound, you put local anesthetic next to that nerve, and you see if it turns off the pain in that area for a period of time. If it does, and it significantly turns off that area of pain, it's a diagnostic test. So it's just to try and work it out. If you are me on the base of the skull and the person still got headaches, then it's you, you know you need to think about other things. Is this a is this a migraine condition? You know, is it not acceptable neural? So so usually you start with a diagnostic block of some sort. You know, lateral femoral nerve entrapments such as myralgia, paresthetica, that, that that uncomfortable feeling on the lateral aspect of the thigh. Another good example. You put a local anesthetic in there. Does that help? If someone's got facet joint pain, so in in their lower back, if they've got significant pain where they're bending backwards and and other bits and pieces, then if you put some local anaesthetic on those facet joints, does that reduce their pain in some way? So a diagnostic test is usually where you start off.
1: Can I just ask a question about that? So I remember there was a phase where a lot of the radiology practices would give people a pain sheet that would go for about four weeks and people would rate their pain pre-injection, uh, immediately pre-injection, immediately post-injection, well, you know, an hour post-injection when the, you know, the long-acting local anaesthetic was still in play, and then at one week, two weeks, four weeks. Is that still a thing? Because I haven't seen it for a long time.
0: Yeah, it should be a thing. I mean, it should be, yeah. It, it, it basically, any diagnostic bot you generally would do that, particularly if, you know, you're a radiology center and you're sending them home reasonably quickly, you're not keeping them in the hospital or whatever other reason might be. Uh, yeah, well, you want to know. And one of the things that, and I was going to touch on this a little bit later, but it's important as well. One of the things is when, when you do an injection, so say you do an intra-articular hip injection, one of the things you, you want to work out is if the pain goes away for a short period of time, say six to eight hours, but the radiologist has also put steroid in and often unfortunately tells the patients, oh, this will work for three months, but it only works for a day and then it doesn't work anymore. Then what's happened is the local anesthetic has worked. So you've got the right spot, but the steroid is a strong anti-inflammatory. It's designed to reduce inflammation. That's what the steroid component is for. So if you've got an acute hip injury, which is inflamed and angry, steroid is helpful. If you've got a severely osteoarthritis hip, Whereas it's not really inflammation, but it's sort of ground down over time and then you've got the two periosteums of the bone rubbing against each other mechanically. Mm. Steroids are not going to help. So actually a lot of our um, orthopedic hip doctors around here now will do, before they'll do a a hip replacement, they'll actually do an intra-articular local anesthetic injection. Because if they numb that and then the person's hip pain or groin pain, you know, for those ones that you can't quite work out, Goes away, then you know that it's likely referred pain from the hip. If you put a, a, a um gland anaesthetic joint injection into that hip, but they've still got severe groin pain, then it could be, you know, a nerve entrapment, it could be something else going on. So it sort of helps yeah. you unpack that a little bit. Yeah. Um, but yeah, absolutely. And I'll kind of start as a tip. So just going back to, so you do a diagnostic block, say, but then, and you worked out where it is, but then you have to think, okay, how do I treat that? Um, I tend to step that up in my brain. I tend to go with uh, the cheaper and, and more and, and quite effective options for to the more expensive and more risky options. The, the first ones are things like prolotherapy, which is injection of um, dextrose around an irritated or injured nerve or muscle. The idea, I mean, they talk about it being regenerative, so the sugar itself being regenerative. And causing a local inflammatory response. I, I think it does, but I think the other components of this is it probably does a hydrodilatation component. So if you've got a nerve that's entrapped around some scar tissue, if you stick fluid right next to the nerve and stretch it, like, like blowing up a balloon and shrinking it and blowing up a balloon and shrinking it, the balloon stretches back out. Uh, I, think, I think that's probably part of what's going on here, too. So sometimes you can do that really effectively. People have a few of those and it can release the pressure and it goes away. Uh, another way to think about that is like carpal tunnel release. You know, so, a carpal tunnel release, you've got pressure over the nerve. They go in, they cut that, they release the pressure, carpal tunnel syndrome goes away. So, kind of the same concept a little bit with prolotherapy and PRP. Um, PRP, obviously, being platelet rich plasma, which is obviously drawn from blood. Um, and they take that platelet-rich plasma and inject that because they think that has a more regenerative component to it. And studies on that have been really quite good. Um, yeah, so so that's an interesting one. So that's one option to consider. Uh, so if you've got someone with, uh, say, a lateral femoral cutaneous nerve entrapment or a simple nerve entrapment, sometimes doing those things nice and early can be can be helpful and can be curative in some cases. Then you then you sort of step on the, the things get a bit more invasive. So um, you can have other things called radiofrequency ablation. Um, and this is a term that I, I'll be honest, I didn't fully, I didn't know much about this before I got into a bit more pain study. There's two types of radiofrequency ablation. So radiofrequency ablation is what it sounds like. So you use radiofrequency waves or heat energy to ablate or, or, or destroy something. So the first one, there's two types. There's, the first one's called RF. So if you've got a, a nerve, so the medial branch nerve uh, supplies the facet joint in your back. Now, it's only a sensory nerve um, into that particular area. It's motor to one particular muscle, but there's multiple innervation. I won't go into that today. But basically what you do is if you've got a little nerve and you put the needle down next to the the nerve and you heat the tip of the needle to 85 degrees for 90 seconds, you burn that nerve. So when people talk about, I just want the nerve burned away, that's what they're talking about. There's a couple of things to be aware of with this sort of procedure, though, is the nerve grows back. That's always the first one. That's always interesting because people think, oh, I burnt it. it won't come back. It, it does. So it, it generally grows back these little nerves. It takes um, about 9 to 12 months to grow back, but it often does. Um, so uh, it's not a permanent solution. So it's quite useful, again, as a window of opportunity. So if you've got someone who can't move their back because every time they move their back goes into acute spasm and they can't do the exercises they need to get better, to go walking, to go swimming, to do the things they want to do, Doing something like this can allow them to do that so they can get the muscles, ligaments and tendons to be a bit stronger and a bit more flexible. The second option, uh, the second frequency ablation you might hear is called pulsed radiofrequency ablation. You do kind of the same thing, needle down to the area you want, but you put high amounts of energy, uh, frequency energy at the end of the needle. And so technically you're not ablating, so it's, it's a, little bit, a little bit of a misnomer, but here What's thought to happen is the C-fibers, which are the unmyelinated pain fibers, pick up that electrical activity and take it back to the cell body. And they've done uh, electron microscopy studies on these, and most of the mitochondria has just been blown out, Um, meaning that cell can't generate energy. So it doesn't send a signal. Um, But it often it does recover, and it recovers over six to nine months or so. Right. The big difference between those two as well is when you're ablating something, if you're burning a nerve, you lose the muscle innovation so if you so you can't do that to say an irritated um, superficial perineal nerve or um, you can't do that to um any any nerves that involves innovation to muscles however pulse star if you can you can do that to almost any nerve in the body to try and scramble the, the pain signal in that in that nerve another good example would be so if someone's got really severe knee pain that's inoperable so an older person who you may have other comorbidities and can't have a knee replacement say you can do a procedure called a genicular nerve radiofrequency ablation. Now, the genicular nerves, there's is is three primary branches, but there's a couple of others that provide sensation to the knee. You can technically burn those. So if you've got an old lady who, you know, say can't get a knee replacement, but it's really affecting her ability to do some of the things she wants to do, you can take the sensation out of that nerve by burning or even pulsing those nerves for a period of time, which can allow them to do a bit more walking and have a bit more quality of life. So... It's an interesting one, and it, it's probably not enough time today to go through all the different possible options. But there are lots of different places and, and things to do with this. Um, I think um, steroid injections, which which you mentioned before, I was going to make a quick quick mention to this. In that, steroid injections are really good for acute stuff. So if someone's injured their shoulder, um, you know, subacromial bursitis, or an itis of some sort, then steroids helpful because it reduces the itis, right? Uh, however, if it's if you've got a severely osteoarthritic shoulder, you know in an eighty-year-old, you know there's no cartilage there. It's subluxing. You know a steroid injection is going to be a lot less helpful. I guess it's important to keep that in mind because otherwise you get these people who just keep getting sent every other month for these and and steroid. You know steroids are steroid. Um, steroids can cause problems, anyway giving someone long-term prednisone could be a problem. So. I mean, a good situation, a good setting where you might think about a steroid injection, for example, would be if someone's got sciatica or radicular pain. So a person comes in, they've got acute sciatica from an acute disc bulge, say it has some imaging and it's at one level, you can see it's a, um, fairly clear cut that that's what the problem is. Then a steroid injection um, into that or an epidural steroid injection, which epidural just means around that particular area in the back area of the spine, which then diffuses that, that steroid then diffuses into the area can reduce down the swelling from that disc more quickly. And so the sciatica tends to resolve more quickly. Interestingly, with studies done on this, particularly for disc bulges, the outcomes are about the same, whether you get a steroid injection or not at 12 weeks. So it might be something that gets the person back. So it's all about that expectation and, and, and explaining to someone, like, this is, there's more risk to have a procedure done, there's a bit of cost to have this done, but it might it might relieve your pain a little bit more quickly. The, the, way, the way I tend to think about it is occasionally these people otherwise end up on, you know, Twenty milligrams of Oxycontin BD at the end of twelve weeks, and then you are kind of, and yeah, their pain yeah. goes away, but then you're kind of stuck with the opioid problem. So yeah, um, okay. yeah so that's yeah, so that's definitely one place you, you, you have to be a little bit careful. Another one that we we've come across um, cordalipid drills. Have you had a cordalipid drills, Sean? Do anyone many people uh, doing them in WA?
1: Um, I have heard of them. I haven't had a patient who's had one done, all for a couple of years. But yes, I am familiar with them. But, yeah, tell yeah. our listeners okay. what what's the place for them.
0: Yeah, again, mixed bag with it. So, cordial drills, if you've got multiple levels of damage in the lower spine, say, so you don't just have one real area. There's, there's someone who you know, has, a, has a little bit of a fracture or a major fall and all their discs are a bit irritated, so they might have some other trouble going on. And, and you, you're doing everything else. You're doing all the right rehab. You're, they're on the right pharmacology. You're, you're caring for this patient. You're doing all the right things, but you're really struggling to get them forward. What's called a caudal epidural is whether you put a little needle into the caudal hiatus, which is uh, or the sacral hiatus at the bottom of the, the sacrum, which is below the level of the spinal cord. So it's a lot less risk, say, than, um, than going higher up. And then you can sort of flush the area above with local anaesthetic and corticosteroid, and that that can be effective in in some people to just buy them a bit of time. But I think I think the caveat I want to keep keep plugging here, Sean, is these are temporary procedures they're designed to work as is a multidisciplinary thing i mean as gps we we love this because you know we, we're all about organizing the team and getting the physio the ot and the speech pathologist and the you know involved that's what we do so it's been interesting heading into the pain faculty and um, a lot of these guys are coming from anesthetics or some other areas where that sort of team coordination may be less of a, a central tenant right uh, yeah. yeah it's been interesting yeah yeah, yeah that's good to know um, the other one that comes up, spinal cord stimulation. Um, have you had any people over in WA that had that, or heard of people having that?
1: Yeah, it's in my experience, it's it's sort of pretty end stage stuff. Um, so where everything else has been tried, and there are multiple stuff and seeing, you know, multiple allied health people, and then somebody goes, "All right, let's try a
0: spinal cord stimulator." Yeah, yeah. what's your experience? Yeah. that's that's totally it. That's totally it. I mean these things are serious right so you, you're implanting a a significant you know device into someone the back of someone's um epidural space so it's not something you want to do willy-nilly but but they can be really helpful for some people particularly those people who've just done everything and you know you try everything for them and nothing is helped. The, the general concept is you, you're putting a lead into the epidural space kind of mm-hmm. like you know epidural pregnancy catheter so for for caesar or something like that, where you thread the catheter up same concept so we go in thread Instead of a catheter, we, we thread a, a little lead which has a couple of electrodes in it. It's about the same size as a frequency um, uh, catheter, actually, it's not much bigger. So you thread this up, and the idea is that it puts out electrical activity to the, the back of the spinal cord. And the idea is that it interrupts or um, disrupts painful signals coming from the lower part of the spine. They, they think that the pain fibres are less myelinated and therefore pick up the electric activity preferentially compared to others, depending on which frequencies of electricity you use. So what they do is they then try and program this and try and pick up different areas. So it's quite interesting to watch someone who's got one of these in and uh, the. Um, the person controlling device turns on different spots so oh that's my that's the side of my leg oh that's my foot oh that's my groin like <laughs> you know because they're going to tingle uh, where, yep. in a particular area where it's targeted. It's, it's, it's interesting to watch. It's sort of yeah, You wouldn't want to give it to your enemy. They <laughs> could really play with you. Uh, yeah, it wouldn't be good. Dr. Uh, yeah, evil.
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: absolutely. It's like, lift your leg. Here we go. Press this button. Oh, there you go. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah not quite that strong, uh, but, but would be entertaining. Um, but, yeah, so you put it – and with these, you just put a trial lead in. So you just literally put the little cat around and leave it hanging out skin with a – Secure dressing over the top of it. Kind of like you'd have a catheter in in theatre, and they trial it. You you want them to go home because you want them to go home and and see if this affects their life. Like, can they now walk better? Can they now do more activities in in an easier way? I mean, the biggest thing for us, interestingly, is not so much the pain score, but more the function level. You know, can someone now you know do some of the things that they want to do? Can they go for a walk with their friend? Can they take their dog out? Can they go to the beach? You know, that's the stuff that people care about in a big way. So. So they go home, they trial this, and then you, you take it out and then you decide. And then at that point, we, we want to see really greater than you know, a 78% reduction in pain and an associated improvement in function. And if it is, then then you can go and get a permanent device put in about six weeks later um, with a little battery. The battery can last depending on the, the type of programming. You know, these ones these days can last six to 10 years. Um, And interestingly, I mean, the batteries are probably about the size of a pacemaker, you know, the sort of pacemaker that people get for the the heart. But there's some new stuff coming that's probably going to be only the size of a USB, Uh, you know, so a little USB drive. Um, Yeah, which would be, you know, again, game-changing because the tech is changing all the time. I I guess one of the key things to keep in mind is some of the so these sort of areas get a little bit controversial because some of the studies for this are mixed results, and they certainly are. And I think a big part of that comes from these are people at end stage that so you're throwing anything at. So I think that's one, one component to consider. I think the, next, the other component to consider is most of the studies are done on tech that's 10 years old because the, they're the ones that are still lying around that people are happy to pay to do a trial on. But if you think about iPhones 10 years ago, they were they were quite different. I mean, you know, the Nokia, what was it, the Nokia H210 or whatever it was, H210, was an amazing phone. It was you know quite different to all we have now. <laughs> uh, less functionality. So, yeah. yeah, a little less functional. Well, probably more solid, but uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I dropped that thing down staircase and so it was fun. Um, So yeah, so so I think uh, so um, yeah. So then someone can have that implanted, but it's it's a big deal. Um, People need reasonably high insurance cover. Um, Like the device itself costs about forty grand, Um, so uh, you need silver or gold level insurance cover. Um, They're rarely done in the public unit mainly because of the the cost restriction. But then when you think a hip or knee replacement is about thirty five. The other thing is this risk of bleeding, infection. Any infection with any implanted device, the thing's got to come out so on and so forth so that's why it's not something you're going to do on the the first person who comes in uh dr paul Frank, who's an amazing pain specialist who's done for 20 years so i've been working with and learning from yeah he generally says he, he usually doesn't even offer these until he's known the person you know six to twelve months uh which i think is an appropriate way to to think about this you, you need that time to have trialed everything else so i think there are unfortunately a few people who might you know say hi what's your name would you like a spinal stimulator and unfortunately that give some of these things a little bit of a bad name Uh, but yeah just just always thinking about you know who you're using and and what you're doing yeah good to know thanks very much robin
1: and that brings us to the end of the first episode in this two-part series to our listeners please keep on listening and we'll cover off on who not to inject when to involve radiologists and the place of steroid injections so
0: hang around thanks for listening to the good gp podcast a proud member of the Talking Health Tech podcast network. Make sure you're subscribed on your favourite podcast player so you don't miss an episode. If you have any questions or would like to contact The Good GP, send an email to thegoodgp at gmail.com. The content of this podcast represents the opinions of The Good GP, hosts and guests of the show. The content is aimed at general practitioners working in the Australian context and is not intended to represent medical advice. Any listeners experiencing symptoms or who have concerns about their health should seek advice from a registered health professional. We make every effort to ensure that the information shared is accurate and up-to-date at the time of recording but welcome any feedback or corrections. The content of this podcast is general in nature and does not refer to specific patient management. We recommend all health professionals review local and up-to-date guidelines Guidelines prior to any clinical decisions.